Good morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, meet me in Psalm 51 as we continue our summer in the Psalms. Psalm 51 is where we'll be today. Um, if, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at FAC. Um, if you've just been joining us for the summer or have just started to to come, um, our senior pastor, Pastor Mark, has been on sabbatical uh, for, for the summer, and we are expecting his return sometime next month. We're very eager and excited to have them. Uh, in the meantime, I've gotten some extended time that it really has been a privilege and honor to be able to spend with you. Um, and so it's good, again, to be with you here this morning. Um, we're going to go ahead and read Psalm 51. We'll just get to the first 12 verses this morning. Um, this is a just jam-packed with excellent uh, stuff in Psalm 51. And just given the time, the first 12 verses are, are all that we're going to get to, uh, which is okay. Um, and so let me go ahead and read, and then I'll pray and we'll begin. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my uh, iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew my right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. And now, Father, we pray that as we come before your word, we would open up the secret places of our heart, the inner being. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would penetrate um, even the darker, deeper spots in, in our lives. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. You don't have to spend much time with me to know that I am a huge movie buff. I love watching movies. My wife and I, our family, we watch movies all the time. And one of my favorites has to be um, the 1994 uh, Shawshank Redemption. Um, it's such a classic. Uh, in the film, the character Ellis Boyd Redding, who is played by the great Morgan Freeman and simply nicknamed Red, narrates the story of the other main character, Andy, who was wrongly convicted for the murder of his wife in 1947 and currently... Uh, is serving two life terms at the Shawshank prison in the movie. Um, about halfway through the film, we come across an inmate by the name of Brooks 
who becomes enraged and threatens to take the life of another inmate while holding him at knife point with a makeshift knight uh, holding it at his throat. And our main characters, Red and Andy, um, they convince Brooks to lay down the knife. And it's here that we discover um, that Brooks has just been informed, he's received word that his parole was finally approved. And just the mere thought of him being free from prison, the freedom outside the prison walls was enough to set him over the edge. And it seems like an odd thing, but later on they're discussing this, and another inmate just assumes that Brooks had gone mad, that he had actually just cracked. He's just gone purely insane. However, Red explains that this is not the case. Rather, he was what he called institutionalized. This is what he goes on to say. He says, the man's been in here for 50 years. This is all he knows. In here, he's an important man. He's an educated man. Outside, he's nothing. Just a used-up con with arthritis in both hands. Probably couldn't get a library card if he tried. You believe whatever you want, but I'm telling you, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough uh, time passes, you depend on them. That's institutionalized. Just like prison walls, we grow comfortable in the bondage of our sin. We become institutionalized to our sin. We, we grow comfortable to it. We grow accustomed to it. We even depend on it at times. And it's for this reason that just the topic of sin is very taboo. We don't really talk about it. We hate to think about it. And unfortunately, when we walk through the walls of the church, we're rarely challenged on it. However, the reality is our sin is alive and well, and it must be addressed. We have to have a hard conversation this morning. It's not going to be very comfortable. It may not be a nice topic, but it is necessary. This is what Psalm 51 addresses. It just helps set the context. I want to point your attention to the, the header of Psalm 51. We actually call this a superscription in, in the beginning of the psalm, even before verse 1. Um, typically, these were put in place merely to indicate who wrote the psalm. Uh, but this one actually includes a little bit more detail to give us some historical context to help understand the passage a little bit better. And this is what it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Uh, This heading is actually referencing perhaps David's most notorious moment uh, that's found in 2 Samuel 11 uh, and 12. So by way of reminder to help us understand this passage, we almost need to take a step back and just review what this story was. The story goes that David, being the king of Israel, was walking about on his roof, on the, on the palace roof, and he glances over and he actually sees a woman bathing, this beautiful, gorgeous woman that he can't seem to take his eyes off of. And so he wants to, um, he wants to, he's not content with just looking, he wants to get to know this woman a little bit better, and so he inquires about her, he sends messengers to find out who this beautiful woman was. And one of these messengers come back, and they say, oh yeah, that's, uh, that's Bathsheba, you know, Uriah's wife. Given the fact that she was a married woman, didn't seem to phase David because he then sends his messengers to go and retrieve her so they could spend the night together. 
Now, given the fit of passion, in the fit of passion that David was in, he didn't consider the consequences of his actions because we later find out that due to their little get-together, Bathsheba was pregnant and David was the father of the child. And all of a sudden you see David kind of leap into a frenzy and trying to attempt to cover his own tracks. And so what he does is he actually calls for Uriah. Uriah was away at the war, and he calls for Uriah to come back in the guise of giving him an update on the, on the war. And so Uriah comes back to King David, gives him an update on how the war is going, and then on two separate occasions, David encourages Uriah to go and spend the night with his wife. He's trying to set up Uriah to make it look like it's not his child, but it is indeed Uriah's child. And Uriah, being the, the good soldier that he is, basically says, hey, if, if, the, if our men are out at war and they're sleeping in uncomfortable tents out in the open fields, who, who am I to go home and enjoy the comfort of my home and the pleasures of my wife? Uriah is a really good guy, and here David's trying to set, it, set him up to make it look like he had done no wrong. But that plan failed. It failed twice. And after the plan failed twice, David decides, I've got to move on to plan B. And this is what plan B was. David writes up a message, a letter to be taken back to the war front that says, put Uriah on the front lines in the heaviest fighting. And when the fighting gets really harsh, everybody needs to pull back so that Uriah would fall by the sword. And he hands this letter, this enclosed message, to Uriah and instructs Uriah to take it back to the war front. Uriah is holding his death sentence. And you see just how terrible this is because it works. It actually works. Uriah would be struck down by the sword. And so not only has David committed adultery, He's now trying to cover it up with more wrongdoing in the context of premeditated murder. He is responsible. Uriah's blood is on David's hands. And David probably thought that he got away with it. He probably thought this wicked scheme that he was able to keep it under wraps, he was able to hide it away, he was able to bury it deep. But we're told at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11 that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. As much as David thought he could hide, God still knew. And he sent a prophet uh, by the name of Nathan to call David out on his sin. And it's through this message, that uh, this messenger, that David actually sees how far he's really descended. It's like the lights click on for David, and he realized just how awful he is. And being rebuked by God through Nathan is what motivates him to write Psalm 51. And we see in the first six verses just how awful sin really is. Um, It gives us a picture of what sin actually is. In the first two verses alone, David describes his wrongdoing three different ways. What does he call his wrongdoing? He says, hey, this is my transgressions. God, blot out my transgressions. Transgression, it's a willful violation of God's standard. It's a purposeful act that goes against his will. A good picture is that of a fist being raised up towards God's will. 
saying, I know you want me to do this, but I am going to act. I'm going to deliberately act against it. I'm going to defy it. It's an insubordinate attitude towards his will. Transgression. Second, it says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Iniquity is immoral behavior. It's unethical behavior. It's akin to the picture of taking something straight and bending it. Setting a new standard, a different standard, your standard, right? So if transgression is a defiance of God's standard, iniquity is a deviation from God's standard, right? It's, it's, a, it's taking his standard and twisting it, molding it to what you think it should be. And finally, third, he asked God to cleanse me from my sin. The word literally, uh, the sin, the word sin literally means to miss the mark, to fall short of the standard. Picture aiming for something, aiming for a target, and missing it so clear that you actually are disqualified from the prize. That's what sin is. Transgression, iniquity, sin. And I find it interesting that instead of just focusing on one specific sin or one aspect of it, he uses multiple terms for his wrongdoing. And the reason that he's doing this is because he wants to communicate just a comprehensive outlook of his sin. He wants to show us the full picture, the all-inclusive view of what sin really is. And he builds on that comprehension in verse 3. And he kind of piles on as we go, and we're going to walk through this. In verse 3, he says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Our sin is like a stain on the heart that doesn't go away. It's like a foul smell. It just kind of lingers unless you figure out the source. It's a pollution that clings to our soul. It's ever before me, and I can't get rid of it. It's just kind of always there. And it's through David's understanding of his position in sin that it's always before him, that it's ever before him, that he really has a blunt realization of his position before God. This is what verse 4 says. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What David is saying is, yes, I sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, I sinned against Uriah, but ultimately, I sinned against God. The terms that we looked at just a moment ago uh, that describe David's wrongdoing, transgression, iniquity, sin, these terms, by definition, imply God's standard. Therefore, all wrongdoing, all sin is ultimately against God. Sin is cosmic treason against the creator of the universe. Our position towards God is one of evil and rebellion. And this is a natural disposition for us to, to reject God and reject his standard because of sin. And so while you have lied to your spouse, the offense is against God. While may, you may have cheated in your business practices, your crime is against God. While you have taken advantage of those less powerful than you, your violation is ultimately against God. We need to take hold of this 
and understand what we're really doing in our sin. In our shortcoming, we are betraying God. And we will never experience the contrition, the remorse, the sorrow that David experiences until you understand the gravity of your crime. You see, we have a very weak view of God because we have a very strong view of ourselves. And we have a very strong view of ourselves because we have a weak view of our sin. We have a weak view of God because we have a strong view of ourselves. And we have a strong view of ourselves because we have a weak, weak, weak view of our sin. God doesn't owe you anything. God doesn't owe you anything. From his perspective, which is really the only perspective that matters, we're criminals. We're criminals. And it's God who judges the crime. You see, we aren't judged by those we've hurt. We aren't judged by um, some kind of disapproval from society. We're not judged by those who hate us for the things we've done. No, ultimately, the ultimate judgment is from God, the ultimate judge. And David reminds us in verse 4 at the end of it that he is blameless in his judgment. David accepts his judgment. David understands that he doesn't stand a chance. And so he says, God, you are a good and perfect judge, and I accept the guilty verdict. I understand that I'm guilty. I understand that you don't owe me anything because, frankly, I do not have a place to stand. I have no chance. There's no argument for me. This is what he gets at in verse 5. He writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. What David is saying is, I was born into this mess. I was born as, as a wretched, evil, rebellious sinner. One commentator uh, says that this crime David now sees was no freak event. It was in character an extreme expression of the warped creature he's always been. Verse 5 is a commentary on the human condition. You know, maybe you don't struggle with a Bathsheba. Issue. Maybe you don't struggle uh, with the things that David struggled with, but this transgression, this iniquity, this sin is in your very nature. It's woven into the fabric of your DNA. It is part of who you are, and you can't shake it. You know, we tend to be really good at compartmentalizing sin, right? I hear this all the time, and it, even I'm guilty of this, where you say, you know, I'm a, I, we just make it a part of our life. It's not, it's not who we are, it's just what we do. You know, I'm a good person, but, you know, sometimes I struggle with pride. I'm not a bad guy. I'm not like the, those other people, but maybe my eyes wander a little bit too much. Maybe, maybe I cheat every once in a while to get ahead, but I'm a, I'm a good guy. That's just like a separate part of who I am. But you see, this is far beyond just something we do. It, rather, it's who we are. This is a part of us. Our sin nature is just this entangled mess that, that, that's just, that creeps into the innermost, darkest, most tightest spaces of our life. It's far more complex than we give it credit for or even realize. And the deeper in we are, the more dangerous it becomes. You don't know 
the long-term damage that your sin is causing. It's like a cancer that's spreading slowly and undetected. The longer that you let it go uh, without doing something about it, the more dangerous it becomes in its expressions. See, one drop is fatal in and of itself. But the deeper you go, the more delirious you become to its effects. Your eyes become distorted. Your perspective becomes skewed. And the deeper you go, the more convinced we become that we are right and God is wrong. And if you go even further, you start to dismiss the whole notion of God and his existence. Sin distorts our perspective. C.S. Lewis, um, the author of the famous Narnia series, actually comments on this idea in his book, Mere Christianity. This is, what it, this is what he says. When a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. A moderately bad man knows he is not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he is all right. This is common sense, really. You understand sleep when you're awake, not while you're sleeping. You can make mistakes in arithmetic when your mind is working properly. While you are making them, uh, while you are making them, you cannot see them. You can understand the nature of drunkenness when you are sober, not when you are drunk. Good people know about both good and evil. Bad people do not know about either. This speaks to just the importance of the Nathans in our life. The Nathans that are bold enough, that put a lot on the line to call you out on your sin. David came to this point because Nathan came into his life and called him out on it. We need Nathans because when we're in it, it's really hard to see. Oftentimes we're blinded by it. And so with this, something must be done. How do we respond? What do we do? Well, David says we have to open up the doors of our heart. This is where confession comes in. I have to let God and others into my, what he would call, inward being, my secret heart. Take a look at verse 6. This is what it says. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God wants access to the parts of our lives that we have tucked away, the things that we have kept in the dark, the things that we have kept in secret. That's what God wants access to. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, when they first broke God's law, his standard, what did they do? They sewed some fig leaves together to try to, hide, to cover their shame, and then they hid from God. They tried to cover their shame. They tried to hide from God. It's our natural inclination to hide. It's a defense mechanism to cover up our sin and shame. You know, by hiding from God and by hiding from others, we protect ourselves from the vulnerability that goes hand in hand with being truly known. We protect ourselves from the insecurity of being, so to speak, found out. How I don't want to be found out. I don't want them to see that I'm a fraud. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to hide it. You know, we convince ourselves, if I, just, if I don't talk about it, it's going to go away. Or maybe if I don't think about it, it'll go away. And so we bury it deeper and deeper and deeper into the bottomless vaults of our heart. When I was younger, I was terrible at keeping my room clean. It was a mess, 24-7. 
At any moment, you could walk in, and it looked like a tornado had ripped through. Uh, my mother hated how messy I kept it, and so um, my solution to getting her off my back about cleaning my room all the time was to just shut the door. And as I shut the door, I'm like, well, if she can't see the mess, then she'll be all right, right? And so I'd shut the door, and she'd come down, and she'd Michael, I want you to go clean your room. And I'd say, well, I shut the door. You can't see it. What's the big deal? And she would always come back with this classic line. I'm sure you've probably heard it before. Maybe you've said it, or you've been on the receiving end of it. She said, even though I can't see it, I know it's there. Even though I can't see it, I know it's there. You know, she, she thought she was so smart. So I decided I was going to do something about it, right? And so um, she comes to me at one point, and we have our usual exchange. Um, she tells me I need to clean uh, my room. And I told her, well, the door's shut. You don't need to. You, you can't see it. You know, how do you know it's there? And she pulls out her classic line. Even though I can't see it, I know it's in there. And at this point, I'm thinking, yes, she's walked right into my plan. And I told her, hey, well, how about you go up and look then? You go up and go up and look in my room. You didn't open the door, did you? Right? And so she goes up. She opens the door, and my room is spotless. You know, there's no more junk on the desk. There's no more dirty laundry on the floor. There's nothing laying on my bed. I'm thinking, yeah, that's right. My room is clean, and you didn't even know it. The joke was on her, though. I didn't clean my room. What I did was I gathered all the junk and all the dirty laundry, and I just piled it into my closet as deep as I could. And I had to do one of those things where I had to close the door and, like, push it shut so the stuff didn't come cascading down, right? All I did was take my mess and move it somewhere else to a darker place, to a deeper place, to a more secret place. And this is how we think we clean our sin, not really by getting rid of it, but just moving it, by burying it. So while you can bury it deeper and deeper, it's still there, and you know it. And not only do you know it, but God knows it. You may have fooled others around you, but you know it's still there. And this is not a good spot to be, because our sin thrives in the deep, dark places. It's in those secret places that our sin grows to be an untamable beast. It grows and grows and grows. And hiding it does not get rid of it. And so what David is saying is open up. Confess it. Will it be painful to bear all? Yes. But it'll be worth it. And so as David confesses his sins to God, he opens up the secret place of his heart in which God delights in. He's, he's really looking for two things in the rest of our passage. In verses 7 through 12, he looked, he's looking for pardon, and he's looking for purity. He's looking for pardon, he's looking for purity. In other words, he's asking for forgiveness, and he's asking for renewal. There's two effects, a twofold effect of, of sin. It's both, uh, it, we receive punishment, but we also receive a stain upon our heart. And so with that, he's asking God to pardon the punishment and give him a new heart, inner, inner renewal, because of the stain that it's left. And he asks these things way back in verse 1 on the basis of his steadfast love. He's saying, have mercy on me, God, according to your steadfast love. I'm asking for mercy because I know that you have steadfast love. If you have an NIV translation, it probably says unfailing love. This is a plea to God to have mercy to his unfaltering love. 
And I love this word that describes God's love, steadfast, uh, because it really explores the farthest reaches of God's love for us and calling it steadfast. A lot of people um, use the word unconditional to describe God's love, but steadfast is a better version of unconditional. It's a stronger word. It's a more powerful word. You actually may be surprised to find out that uh, God's love is never described in the Bible as unconditional. The word unconditional is actually not in the Bible. You will never find it. However, his love is described as steadfast hundreds of times. Now, while his love is indeed unconditional, I'm afraid to call God's love unconditional. almost dampens our understanding of sin and its effects. It's, it's, I, hey, I can do whatever I want, and without condition, God will still love me. But when we call his love steadfast, it illuminates our understanding of sin and it affects, and it illuminates our idea of his love. You know, his unconditional love is great news for the non-believer who can come as he is. His steadfast love is great news for the believer that even after I've received salvation and I fall over and over and over and over again, God will remain loyal. It reminds us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were against him, he was for us. While we were disloyal, he is always loyal. And so in verses 7 through 9, he's saying, on the basis of your steadfast love, God, I am asking you for forgiveness. This is a request for forgiveness. What does he say in verse 7? Take a look. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. And wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Here in Erie, we know how white snow can get. All 200 inches of white, white snow. What David is requesting is to be cleaned, to be cleaned of the muck that's on him, to be washed of just the nasty, gross sin that's implanted into his life. Hyssop is a type of plant, and they would use its branches. They would bound them together, and then they would be dipped in water that was held in these ceremonial washing jars, and they would use these branches to sprinkle water, and it was a symbol of purification. You know, according to the Old Covenant, they would do this in order to clean somebody spiritually, to purify them uh, uh, spiritually. It's It's an image that we get that David is asking. He's asking God, purify me spiritually, clean me clean me. Verse 8, as we continue, says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So Lord, not only do I want you to clean me, but I want you to bring me back into the fold. Bring me back. Let me hear the joy and the gladness that comes with being in your company. My bones are broken. I'm in pain. uh, But although I'm wounded, I am rejoicing to be brought back into your fold. I've been washed. I've been welcomed back. And then he continues in verse 9 by saying, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. To hide one's face, this is an image of rejection. And so what David is asking God to do is reject my sins. Hide your face from my sins. To blot out means to literally wipe away. 
We get this idea that we have incurred a large debt, and the debt is written out on a piece of paper. Our sin is written out on a piece of paper. And what David is asking God to do is wipe that out. Clean it up. Give me a clean slate. Cancel my debt. Cancel my debt. This is a great picture of what forgiveness really is. It's, it's holding no record of wrong. It's as if you go to the bank to check your balance on your mortgage and you give them your loan number and they bring up your loan and they say, I'm sorry, but we have no record of you owing anything. You don't know, someone must have paid it because you don't owe anything anymore. To ask God to blot out um, my iniquity is looking to God and God saying, I'm sorry, I have no record of your sin. To me, you, you aren't a sinner anymore. I've blotted that out. I've wiped, I've wiped it clean. I've, been, I've given you a clean slate. You do not owe anything anymore. To be forgiven is to be cleaned of our past. However, we must not stop there because we're going to advance in the future. Right? There needs to be a second request, a, a request not just for pardon, but also for purity. David asks for forgiveness, and then in verses 10 through 12, he asks for renewal. You know, David doesn't desire to tread through the same muck that he just washed off. He's got all clean, so what's the point of getting dirty again? He's been given a clean slate, and he wants to keep it clean. And in order for that to happen, something has to change, because he's aware that his sin is is not simply an action, but in his very nature. And so as a dog returns to its vomit, he realizes that unless something changes in his nature, he's going to wind up right back in the thick of it unless something changes. And this is why behavior modification is not the answer. You know, behavior modification is merely throwing the problem in the closet to a deeper, darker place. Its only focus is the surface. Attempting to merely change your behavior is an ineffective way to combat sin because, once again, sin is far more complex than we realize. And so the solution's got to be stronger than just doing something or not doing something because it's not a problem with your actions. Your actions are merely an expression of your heart. And that's where the real problem lies, is your heart. Because the origin of our sin is found in our heart, our nature And so the solution lies in not what we do, but who we are. It's not that um, our actions need to change. We need to change. God's word teaches us a better way. When we trust and believe in Jesus, something happens to us. See, as Christians, as Christ followers, something miraculous happens. We don't become better people. We become new people. It's not about being better It's about being made alive. We are, as Jesus would describe, born again. This is the request. This is what we see, uh, what we get in verse 10 when David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Give me a new heart. I need a new heart. I need a clean heart. This is a profound and powerful request. The word create here is actually the same word used in Genesis 1 when it says that God created the heavens and the earth. Lord, 
Just as you created the majestic existence of the universe, the glorious universe and the galaxies that surround me, just as you created those things, I need you to create in me a clean heart. I need you to create in me a clean heart. And just as you created all of those things out of nothing, I need you to create in me a clean heart out of nothing because I have nothing to offer. Because just as Romans 7, 18 says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Just like a drop of poison contaminates the whole pitcher of water, the tiniest bit of my heart spoils it all, spoils the whole batch. And so, Lord, I need you to give me a new heart because I come empty-handed and I come, I come unable and I come unwilling. There is nothing that I have to offer. And so I'm asking you, Lord, to create in me a new heart because mine's a filthy wretch. Mine's disgusting. And the smallest amount is going to ruin it. If I want purity, if I want holiness, I need the Lord to create in me a pure heart. I need him to renew my spirit. So as we come to a close, there's wonderful news within scripture. You know, you sit here and you see David's request for these things. There's something glaring to me as we read this, that this is all from David's perspective. We don't hear God speak. We don't hear God respond. But the beauty of scripture is that it's consistent. And we can look to other places to find God's response. And I believe the clearest response to David's prayer can be found in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. And now while God is not speaking directly to David here, I do believe that it applies. This is what God says through the prophet Ezekiel. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God has promised to wash us and create in us a new heart. How? How does he do this? By what method does he clean us? You don't have to look any further than John chapter 2 to Jesus' first miracle to find the answer when he turns water into wine. Many people miss this, but let me connect the dots for you. And Jesus is at a wedding and all the wine goes out. Jesus' mother comes to Jesus and says, you got to do something about it. And so we're told in verse six um, that there were six stone jars. And for some reason, the gospel writer, John, goes out of his way to explain that these six jars were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. 
the, the water that would be put in these jars were used for that symbolic cleansing, that symbolic spiritual pur- purification that I had mentioned earlier. That water was meant to clean people spiritually. And what does Jesus do with it? He takes it and he turns it into wine. He takes water that was meant to clean somebody spiritually and turns it into wine. Why on earth would he turn it into wine? Because what does wine represent? According to Jesus' very own words at the Last Supper, his blood, his blood. What Jesus is doing in this miracle is saying, hey, look, you've taken this water and you've tried to clean yourself spiritually. I'm going to give you something else to clean you with. I am going to wash you with my blood. My body will be broken and my blood will be poured out so that you can be forgiven and renewed. We took part this very morning in the symbolic act that pointed to Jesus' blood being poured out to give you pardon and to give you purity. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the profound mystery that is the gospel. The fact that while I am a wretch, while I am a sinner, while I am a criminal in your eyes, your steadfast love covers all of that. And now, Lord, I'm no longer a criminal. I'm no longer a sinner in your eyes. I've been brought into the fold. And we praise you, Father, because we understand there's nothing that we can offer There's nothing that we can give because we come empty-handed, Lord. We praise you for this and the sacrifice of your son, Lord. And now as we close our time in worship, Father, um, and as we we take up offerings, Lord, I pray that these offerings um, would show, um, that we give not out of obligation, Lord, uh, but out of the gratefulness of our hearts for what you've done for us, Lord. And I pray that you would bless um, this offering, that it would be used to make your steadfast love known. We praise you, Father, and in your holy name I pray. Amen.